The text for this morning is found in the book of Galatians, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no better than a slave, though he is the owner of all the estate. But he is under guardians and trustees until the date set by the father. So, with us, when we were children, we were slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So through God you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were in bondage to beings that by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I am afraid I have labored over you in vain. I'd like to talk this morning about a typical way that demons go to work in contemporary religions and in the visible Christian church. And I think that you'll find that the method that they use is fairly antiseptic. They try very hard to avoid all appearance of evil, lest they be exposed for the merciless, life-destroying demons that they are. And therefore, their work in the church is extraordinarily deceptive. Of course, not many people in the 20th century believe in demons, and maybe some of you don't. Evil spirits who oppose God and who deceive unbelievers, and if it were possible, lead astray even the elect. There's such a difference between voodoo and uh, witch doctors and black magic and divination and exorcism difference between that on the one hand and space technology and microsurgery and word processors and psychotherapy. On the other hand, that we feel that the emancipated, enlightened, high-tech West simply cannot believe in demons. Even though the Lord Jesus took them with deadly seriousness, we have a hard time taking them seriously because in our culture we don't see many of the kinds of overt supernatural outcroppings that we sometimes associate with the work of demons. But if you reject the work of demons and the reality of demons, you reject the counsel of Jesus and all his apostles. Jesus said, if I by the finger of God cast out demons, the kingdom of God has come upon you. And Paul said, we struggle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, the powers, hosts of wickedness in heavenly places. Peter said, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. James said, resist the devil and he will flee from you. John said, every spirit which does not confess Jesus, is not of God. This is the spirit of Antichrist of which you heard that he is coming, and I tell you, he's already in the world. 
And what's important for us to realize this morning is that already in pre-scientific first century, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, exposed a scheme of Satan which is just as prevalent in the 20th century as it was in the first century and much more destructive than voodoo or witchcraft or divination. It is clean and it is moral and it is religious and it is hellish. And it is described for us in Galatians chapter 4, verses 1 to 11. The main point of this passage is this. Don't turn back from Christ to slavery to demons. Look at verse 8. Formerly, when you did not know God, you were in bondage to beings that by nature are no gods. Now, Paul wants very much to preserve the word God for the one true God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He doesn't like the idea of applying that word to other beings. But he knows that formerly these Galatians, through their pagan idol worship, had been enslaved to these other beings, whatever you call them, who are no gods. And I think it's very important for us to see here that he did not deny the existence of those beings. What he denies is that by nature, they have no right to be called gods. Let me try to show you why I think that. You might want to turn with me back to 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5. In 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 5, Paul is struggling with the same use of language here. Shall I call them gods or lords or shall I not? And listen to how he handles it here in 1 Corinthians 8, 5. For although there are many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, and then look how he qualifies. As indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things. In other words, though he doesn't like the titles, he has to reckon with the fact that there are so-called gods, so-called lords that do exist. And who are they? Turn over two chapters to 1 Corinthians 10, 20. Here he makes plain what he has in mind. What pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons, not to God. I do not want you to be partners with demons. Therefore, I conclude that in Galatians chapter 4, verse 8, Paul is saying that formerly these Gentile Galatians had not known the true God, but had in fact, through their kind of worship, come under the sway and bondage of beings who by nature are no gods, namely demons. Now, the danger that was facing these people, now that they had turned from those old ways, had learned of the gospel, had begun to follow Christ, is that through the temptation of the Judaizers, they were somehow being led to turn back. Look at verse 9. But now, 
that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and beggarly elemental spirits who slaves you want to be once more? Now, here we have a translation problem because there are probably four different translations in this congregation, at least right now. If you've got a revised standard version, you can see with me, that's what I'm reading, that the translators thought that the elemental spirits of verse 9 are the same as the beings of verse 8. Verse 8 says, you were once in slavery to these demonic beings. Verse 9, how can you want to turn back to those elemental spirits? Just changes the name, calls them something else. But if you've got a King James Version, it says, weak and beggarly elements. If you have a New International, it says, weak and miserable principles. And if you've got a New American Standard, it says, weak and worthless elemental things. The Greek word behind all of those can mean all of those, can mean basic rudimentary principles, ABCs. It can mean the elements of which the world is made, earth, fire, water, that sort of thing. And it can refer to rudimentary kinds of spirits that stand between man and God. And therefore, the question isn't what does the word mean in itself, it's what does it mean in its context. And so you have to look with me at the context to see which of those is going to make best sense here. Now, I think that when you read 8 and 9, verses 8 and 9 together, the RSV seems best. Verse 8 talks about a bondage to spiritual beings, if I've interpreted that correctly in view of 1 Corinthians 8. And then verse 9 says, don't turn back to them and calls them spirits, which is natural. But if we shift our focus forward from verse 9 instead of backwards and read verse 10 in relation to verse 9, we get a very different feeling for what Paul might be saying. Verse 10 says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. I'm afraid I've labored over you in vain. Now, what's he referring to in verse 10? Would you agree with me that probably in view of the false teaching of the Judaizers that we've seen, this is probably a holy days and festivals that have been laid on the, the new Christians. And they're saying, look, if you, if you Christians want to get on with the Christian life and become mature, you have to become more Jewish and keep the holy festivals. Now, if you read verse nine in the light of that, then it would make sense to translate it elemental things or basic principles. In other words, how can you turn back to those old legal principles? You're keeping days and months and years. I think I've labored over you in vain. So which is it? How the, the way I pose myself, the question is, how can I honor verse eight and verse 10 when I read verse nine? Verse eight suggests that the slavery is to demons. Verse 10 suggests that the slavery is to the law, legal principles, elementary, rudimentary, legal statutes and ordinances. Well, here's what I'm going to do. And I think this is what Paul wants me to do. I'm going to say, let them both stand and point to a deep, subtle relationship between demons and law. So I think this is what Paul wants us to see. It is true, on the one hand, that verse 10 suggests that the Galatians were in the process of accepting the Judaizers' false teaching that you've got to keep those uh, 
rudimentary legal principles about circumcision, dietary laws, uh, feast days, if you're going to earn God's blessing. Verse 10 fits perfectly with all we've seen about the danger of legalism in this book. In fact, when you read verse 11 in relationship to verse 10, where Paul says, I'm afraid of, I've labored over you in vain. That reminds you, if you remember, of chapter 3, verse 3 and 4, where Paul said, Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun with the Spirit? Are you now ending with the flesh? Did you experience so many things in vain? If it really is in vain, Paul is just hoping, as it were, against hope. All the reports aren't completely true. They haven't completely turned away from Christ, yet he hopes, and I think believes. Both chapter 3, verses 3 and 4, and chapter 4, verses 9 through 11, show that the danger the Christians were facing were dangers of turning from reliance upon the Spirit of Christ back to the flesh or themselves, reliance upon themselves in efforts to keep the law in order to prove themselves worthy to be saved or sanctified. And the danger is that they begin to use the law of God, as I've said before, as a job description by which they can earn wages of blessing. So many people treat the law as a job description by which they go to work to impress their employer with the indispensability of their moral power or virtue and get wages, namely eternal life. So verse 10 fits in perfectly with all we've seen about the dangers of legalism in this book. But verse 8 takes us deeper now, something we've not seen anywhere before in this letter, except perhaps verse 4 of chapter 1. But I won't go into that. You can check that out later. Verse 8 of this chapter takes us down to a level of trouble in Galatia that we haven't noticed before. Namely, when you use the law in order to earn favor from God, you are not merely in bondage to the law, you are in bondage to demons. That's the new truth that emerges from verse 8 in its relation to 9 and 10. The most astonishing thing in this passage is that Paul says that Galatian Christians are in danger of going back to the slavery of their former Gentile pagan religion when they turn to Jewish legalism. Isn't that amazing? Remember now that these Galatian believers had not come out of Jewish heritage. They didn't have the law. Most of them were probably ordinary pagans who had different kinds of mystery religions and whatnot. And they had found Christ, at least superficially they had, and had turned away from the old Idolatry, and with it, the slavery to demons, which are behind those idols. And can you imagine how thunderstruck the Judaizers must have been, those rigorous moral monotheists out of Jerusalem, to hear Paul say to these Galatians, 
if you follow the Judaizers into their legal practices, it's the same as going back to your idols and coming under the slavery of demons. I'm sure that would have incensed the Judaizers for Paul to equate their moral, religious, legal efforts to earn God's favor with idolatry and demonic bondage. In other words, Paul has uncovered for us here a typical demonic scheme which is just as prevalent in the religions of the 20th century as it was in the first century. It is clean, it is moral, it is religious, and it is hellish. Now, one of my duties as pastor of a flock like this is to uh, keep you posted about Satan's methods. He is relentless in his desires and his efforts to unhinge your faith. Satan's number one aim at Bethlehem Baptist Church is to cause people to turn away from a humble, childlike reliance upon the spirit of the living Christ in their lives to a legal form of self-righteousness. If God can't make you disobey the Ten Commandments through rebellion, you know what he'll do? I said God. If Satan can't make you obey the Ten Commandments, disobey the Ten Commandments through rebellion, you know what he'll do? He'll make you obey them with the wrong spirit. What spirit? You remember Romans 7, 11, where Paul said, Sin, finding occasion in the commandment, deceived me by it, and killed me with it. He could have said exactly the same thing about Satan. Satan, finding occasion in the commandment, deceived me into thinking that I should use the commandment to earn my way to God, killed me with it. No, Satan chortles over moral people who do that. By tempting us to use the law as a vehicle for self-righteousness, he destroys us. Ruins the church. There were some false apostles at Corinth that I want you to be aware of. In 2 Corinthians chapter 2, chapter 11, verses 13 to 15, Paul is responding to some false apostles who were using the law just like the Judaizers were apparently using it, as a ground for boasting and as a way to demonstrate your moral self reliance over against God, so he'd have to repay you. Listen to what he says. The reason I quote this text is because I don't know of any other text in the New Testament where satanic work in the church and the use of the law or righteousness are brought together like they are here in the most astonishing way. Such men, Paul says in 11.13, are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ, and no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is not strange that his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. 
That is a daring statement. You see what he's saying? Satan and his servants make themselves servants of evil. Servants of righteousness. That ought to blow your mind away and cause you to do much self-examination. What kind of righteousness? I think it's defined for us beautifully in Romans 10.3. Being ignorant of the righteousness that comes from God and seeking to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to the righteousness of God, Paul says about his Jewish kinsmen. Satan and his demons specialize in taking God's holy commandment and alluring people in the church to make that commandment a basis of self-righteousness. Therefore, Paul saw behind the legalistic teaching of the Judaizers in Galatia a teaching that was as deadly as anything you see around today an age-old demonic scheme for destroying genuine faith and with it the church. And small wonder that he doesn't start this letter with happy thanksgivings and how are you's and his indignation is manifest throughout. Now what does that mean for us? Let me just try to make a couple of applications here. Satan does not care if you keep the Ten Commandments. Okay? Satan does not care if you, if you keep the Ten Commandments, provided you keep them in your own strength. In fact, Satan will assist you with all his might to keep the Ten Commandments if you will agree to keep them like that. I preached last spring, you remember, from Second Peter. Second Peter mounted all of its guns against lasciviousness lechery, and all the manifest open evils that crop into the church and out of the church. And we told it like it was. Galatians mounts all of its guns against righteousness. That is, self-righteousness. Paul's not too worried about the grosser sins in Galatia. And yet he seems to be as indignant as in any book he wrote, and therefore I take that to mean that there are subtle dangers in these kinds of demonic schemes as much as in the more gross kinds of sins. In fact, not only does he do not care if you, if you keep the Ten Commandments, he, he doesn't care if you uh, come to church. He doesn't care. Satan doesn't care if you teach Sunday school or preach or lobby for a human life bill, or work for the freeze, or try to get prayers into schools. He is all for your moral agenda, whatever it is. And we'll help you in it, provided you are relying on yourself instead of the sovereign spirit of the grace of Christ in your life, and taking the credit instead of humbly giving it all to God. He's for you all the way in your morality and your church life, if that's the spirit in which you do it. Our adversary has a very clever scheme, and we need to be apprised of it, warned of it, often. But I want to close this morning with a word of hope, strong hope, because it's in the text. 
And though this world with devils filled should threaten to undo us, we will not fear, for God has willed his truth to triumph through us. The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word will fell him. And one of those little words that will fell Satan in your life is in verses 3 through 7 of Galatians 4. And I commend to you that if you have a spare half hour to meditate today, memorize it. It'll liberate you. It'll guard you from demonic deception. When we were children, now that doesn't mean physical children, that means before the time when faith came. When we were children, we were slaves to the elemental spirits of the universe. But when the time had fully come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem, to buy out those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So through God, you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir. Now, do you see what that means? Let me try to picture for, you, picture for you in closing what that means. That means at the fullness of time, God was in heaven and he looked down on the world. And he saw his world. It's his. He made it. He owns it. It's his by right. And it's under the dominion of the evil one and all his demons. And he turns to Jesus, the son, and says, prepare for the invasion. The artillery is going to be heavy when you make your landing. And you won't get far on the beach until you are killed. But be of good courage. I will raise you from the dead. And the beachhead that you establish, small though it be, like a little mustard seed, is going to spread through every tongue and tribe and nation. 